0: Now, here is your host, Dr. Elise Cortez.
1: Welcome back to the Working on Purpose program. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, joining you live from Dallas, Texas, which is home base for me. If you've been tuning in for a while, you know this program is a thought leadership series that enlightens and inspires listeners with insights from distinguished business leaders and subject matter experts. Our conversations are designed to make you think, inspire you to ever reach for cultivating your best and make and take an informed approach toward leadership and business. Our guest today is Dr. David Drake. He's the founder and CEO of the Moment Institute, which is a global network of practitioners dedicated to advancing his life's work in narrative coaching and integrative development. He's the author of over 60 publications, including as lead editor of The Philosophy and Practice of Coaching, co-editor of Sage Handbook of Coaching, and author of Narrative Coaching, The Definitive Guide to Bringing New Stories to Life. We'll be talking about the work he does in narrative coaching and integrative development, spend some time delving into the theory and models, and hear how he uses them to help organizations. He joins us today from Petaluma, California. David, welcome to Working on Purpose. Welcome, Ali's so great to have you and listeners i always like to tell you where i where i find my guests i was minding my own business mostly i was on linkedin and david happened to show up on my search because he and i went to field and graduate institute 20 years ago Mm -hmm. so david you and i met 20 years ago which is just a you know mind-boggling in and of itself you have been a very busy man the last two decades and you know that i'm a meaning and work researcher an identity researcher so how would you describe or situate yourself as to who you are today for our listeners (laughs)
2: Yeah, it's interesting as you you live long enough and you move through various phases of your life. And I went from being sort of an, a very competent OD consultant to a doctoral student and emerged on the other side as the founder of Narrative Coaching and spent about a decade uh, writing as a scholar to build an academic foundation for that body of work and traveled all over the world uh, to teach. And I'm not moving into this phase now where I'm moving... Into more of a mentoring phase, where we're teaching uh, faculty to do, to run our programs uh, with and for us, uh, and sort of moving back into more of a pure thought leader space as we grow the business, because we've got uh, more things in store. So it's been fun to kind of watch myself uh, take this journey, and and uh, yeah.
1: Well, it's really it's really inspiring to behold. Um, and, as I told you when I read the the book chapter in the article that you sent me, I really appreciate the clarity of your writing, which mm. tells me that this you know this stuff, right? You know this I because do. you're an academic, right? When you really know something, you can you convey it in the ability of your reader to grasp what you're saying. So hats off, it's an inspiration. And to that end, um i'm I'm really just impressed with what you've done at the moment Institute. So why does it exist, and how was it born?
2: Well, it actually was born in some ways out of your first question. So, for me, I realized the world didn't really need any more theories about management and leadership. It didn't really need uh, more fancy words. What it really needed was sort of a, a movement of like-minded folks trying to kind of reimagine what it means to lead in the world that we find ourselves in now. And so, in many ways, you know, we're starting to start this movement of uh, re- recognizing that practitioners are really hungry to really assemble their life's work, really work in a more integrative fashion, kind of work in a more human fashion, not caught up so much in the buzzwords of the day. And so when I realized that I wanted to move out beyond just narrative coaching, we had to change the name of the business away from the Center for Narrative Coaching to think bigger about what the work we were doing and take it out of even the professional realm to look at more of a global impact from our work. And I realized that the one common thread that stood out for all of the work I've done for the past probably 30 plus years is I have this fascination with the choices that we have available to us in any moment in time and how do we help say, for example, the leaders or managers that we work with to make new choices under lots of pressure. And so we do, we found this way of bringing sort of a psycho-spiritual approach about self-awareness and, and mindfulness into kind of more of a professional and social approach, which is the context in which people were working. And the Institute basically studies what happens for people at that intersection And then how would you train practitioners to work in a very different way, which I'm sure we can get into later. But the Institute really created this platform to start attracting all the people we've worked with over the last 30 years to begin to go on this journey to lean into the unknown, which the pandemic has really accelerated, to begin to discover how we might do our practice in a fundamentally different way. And so the Institute's basically doing R&D and training uh, and coaching in that space to begin to imagine how else we might be in service of our clients
1: really appreciate that, David. And from many, many vantage points, one, just the the enormous impact that you're making across the world and and the other thing that I certainly appreciate too, given that we're both probably about the same age, um you know there's something about getting to the stage of life in terms of lifespan development psychology. you and I both studied, I'm sure mm-hmm. you know we're at this generative stage where I don't know about you, but being able to give something that that per- perhaps surpasses my own death is 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 yeah. important. it is. And you're doing that, and I really, really applaud that. So thank you for that. And, again, it's an inspiration. I'm now in the process of elevating and transforming my own business Mm. to make a greater reach as well. So um, you are inspiring me to continue my quest.
2: Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs)
1: <laughs> One of the many things that you say in your website that is very compelling, David, that I want to share with our listeners and have you speak to, you, you say on the Moment Institute website, you say, we are in a great unraveling and an awakening and opening toward a great turning, which is a more life-sustaining society. And I see that you've worked with tens of thousands of practitioners, which is amazing, and leaders around the world at their thresholds. And the Institute is launching new programs to help make this great pivot toward this new narrative we need. I want to unpack each of those words and get you to speak to a bit of what's behind that. There's a lot behind that whole that whole statement there, but let's start with unpacking those words first. First, unraveling. What do you mean?
2: Uh, so, uh, first I have to offer a c- credit to the great Joanna Macy who uh, sort of pioneered this sort of framing of the first two of the unraveling and the turning and we've added the great pivot. So. Um, you know just you have to look in the news every day and you begin to see that a lot of the social fabric our institutions our notion of democracy are really sort of unraveling in a variety of ways and some done with hope and some done with I think something else but and there's a lot of things that maybe we, at least you and I grew up with are, are just fundamentally different now and people are really yearning like what does a school mean now? And what is, how do we provide healthcare for people? And how do we get different points of view in the same room in a civil manner? And so as with any change, it often begins with an unraveling. And it's like a, 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 a rope that uh, the, the threads are coming apart. And so people are responding in a variety of different ways. If you look at history, um, uh, if you were to look at history say a hundred years from now, looking back now, I think we'll discover that the pandemic's just, like I said, accelerating the this moment in time where humanity's making uh, some fundamental choices that will, will forever alter the course of our history as a species. And so one of the options would be this sort of great turning. So what if we actually woke up to what's happening around us, um, around the environment, around race, around economics, uh, around a lot of things, and actually sort of turned and uh, and sort of um, moving towards a different frame for how we want to be together um, and so then unraveling is sort of what's setting that in motion and we know enough about human nature from our studies at least to know that you know people respond to that from very different developmental perspectives and so we're uh, doing a lot of work right now helping our clients and our practitioners cope with the unraveling so they can bring more of their best self to help turn themselves and others around them uh, in a different direction to begin to seize this moment. And for me, that sort of end constitutes a pivot. So every day of our life, uh, every moment right now, it seems like we're having to make these big choices and we're trying to set up the Institute to be able to support people to make those harder choices to kind of lean into some of the dilemmas we face. Uh, Otherwise, you know, um, I'm not sure this will turn out very very well for us. But I think there's a a great sense of hope for what we're doing. And a lot of practitioners are really uh, hungry for something besides the usual way of doing business because they see the gravity and the opportunity that's in front of us.
1: You know, one of the things that is so great about getting to host this show, David, and I've been doing it for five and a half years, I think you're number episode 284 or something like that. (laughs) It has given me such a profound way to continue my own learning while I share Mm -hmm. that with my listeners. And so what it also does is it gives gives me access to a network of other people that are like-minded and heading in a similar Mm -hmm. direction. And so I see so much great work being done in the world to help steward us toward that future that you just described, Mm -hmm. that that we want for ourselves. And do it in 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 an intentional way, not just a reactionary way. So I, too, have a lot of hope. Good. Good. So, one of the things you said in in our phone conversation that was very, very interesting to me is you distinguished learning in school. Will you do mm-hmm. that again for our listeners?
2: I'd be happy to. So, uh, so I have a daughter who just finished high school and I uh, was just um, fascinating slash horrifying to see what counts as high school now. And uh, it's very different than I remember it, um, which isn't about nostalgia. It just means that our schools have not really kept up with the rest of our society and so and and what's happened then that's that same model of school replicates itself in corporate training programs and a lot of different aspects of our life and, I, and there's a lot of movement in that space sort of in the places like the Khan Academy, the Khan Academy. but For me, um, I'm really fundamentally interested in um, how do people actually learn? How do they actually grow? And it really has nothing to do with how long you sit in a chair and listen to somebody. So for me, I haven't done a traditional corporate training program for probably six or seven years. and I, I won't ever do them again, most likely. I don't find them a good investment of my life's time and my client's money. Uh, it's an outdated model for many ways, beyond certain things like onboarding and basic skills where there is just a lot of teaching involved. Uh, for me, I want to get away from school as a paradigm. I think it's broken in many ways. And despite all the efforts of our Uh, nation's teachers, et cetera, that we know enough about how learning actually happens through uh, people like Paulo Freire and others who really took a more humanitarian and natural approach um, to learning. And so what we're doing in the Institute is teaching um, coaches and other practitioners to really let go of a lot of their um, stereotypes or their assumptions about what they remember about school and sort of empty their proverbial teacup. And, and come into what we're doing with a very fresh mind about how do you help people actually learn. And in many ways, what they start to discover that, A, it's actually easier than we think, but B, that requires letting go of a lot of the structures and uh, power and control that we're used to to actually um, move into more of a natural approach to learning. So for me, that's really at the heart of a lot of what we do.
1: David, for our listeners who aren't able to remove themselves as fish swimming in the sea and therefore recognize they're in water, can you just say a little bit about what's wrong with that? What What do you mean by traditional school, traditional workshop and learning?
2: Yeah, so I mean, assumptions like the, um, uh, so I did this once when I was presenting in the, in the Netherlands and their um, afternoon workshop person got ill at lunch and had to leave. So they asked me to step in with like no preparation, no notice and so we went to the room that they had set up for us with like 75 people and all the chairs were in rows uh, very close together all facing the front and I asked these people so what are the assumptions that are implicit in the way this room is set up by the hotel oh well that uh all the entries are up front we have to be polite and sit in straight rows we can't actually talk to each other and so for me um most schools are even the ones that are maybe more contemporary in style still assume that you can know ahead of time what you need to know there's a fixed curriculum it's sort of guided or uh, provided by the faculty person um, that you the best thing to do is then test you about all that and that learning and testing and scores and grades kind of all go together which they don't at all um, and it really then becomes more about um, if you look at um, students their aim is to perform well at school. It may or may not have anything to do with what they actually have learned okay, or the yeah. value of what they've learned or the the um, generative nature of what they've learned. It's just that they've passed all the right hoops to complete the process. And so for me, when you look at um, like the joy of learning when you were a kid, you know, before you discovered school and it kind of wrecked that, um, it was this all about curiosity and creativity and connecting with people and being part of your surroundings. Um, and I just feel like even in a technology-saturated environment like ours, that it's we need to kind of go back to what we understand about how people actually learn and build systems and communities around that, not about how to kind of move in almost like a factory-like fashion through something that somebody else has set up.
1: Beautiful. That helps so much distinguish what what it was you were trying to convey. And then to that end, to add to that, I gotta believe that you, when you talk about the power of human connection as a foundation for learning, that's gotta undergird what you just said. Yes? No? Kind of? Sort of?
2: Uh, totally. Because you know, we we humans are relational beings. Even those of us like myself who are introverts, we are fundamentally relational beings. That's how we've survived this long, as a species. That's how we've thrived as a species. And yet. You know, so much of our like performance systems at work, our grading in schools, or even some of our status systems in communities, really has to do with individual performance, particularly in the U.S., less so in other parts of the world. But the U.S. is obsessively individualistic it's in many ways, while we're not doing so well with the pandemic. Um and you know, societies that are more communal in nature, or social in nature, relational in nature, say like in Asia, Australia, Europe, um, have a much greater sense of the common good, uh, much more willingness at times to um, supplant, you know, to to let go of one's own individual needs for the for the good of the whole, because in the end, that's better for everybody, and even for yourself. Um, and so, fundamentally, what we find now is that. Um, People are lonely, people want more connection, they want more meaningful connection, they want more um, substantive relationships. And so for me, again, when everything is based on individual competition or achievement, uh, sort of the, the, the hero kind of myth, that um, really, A, goes against how we understand humans, but B, uh, is really not very conducive to learning. Uh, So for us, we're really interested in, and and we're finding this right now, we're starting a new um, uh, membership program for our community. And when we've been doing the research about what they most want from this, it really has very little to do with content. It has everything to do with the quality of relationships they experience in our community. Mm -hmm. We've had this so many times these last few weeks as we've gotten started that many of them have said, um, and and many of our folks have never actually met each other, but they said, I have better connections here than anywhere else in my life.
1: Yes, totally understand
2: yeah and it's I think that's people are especially right now, we need this more than ever, and again goes back to schools don't teach us about relationship. They teach us about stuff, and people don't want any more stuff <laughs> they, yes. uh, you they want they want meaning and purpose they want mm-hmm. intimacy, they want a sense of hope and contribution mm-hmm. and um, so we're trying to tie those innate human needs to their own learning journeys to help them uh, fulfill that.
1: I love it, David. I'm so glad to have you as a guest. Let's grab our first break. I'm Elise Cortez. We're on the air with Dr. David Drake. He's the founder and CEO of The Moment Institute and the author of over 60 publications, including Coaching, The Definitive Guide to Bringing New Stories to Life. He joins us today from Petaluma, California. We've been talking a bit about where his journey has taken him and why it's important. After the break, we're going to talk more about some of the theories and narrative coaching and the models. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant, special In meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose inspired leadership and meaning infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A L I S E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back. To Working on Purpose.
1: Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just joining us, my guest is Dr. David Drake. He's the founder and CEO of the Moment Institute, which is a global network of practitioners dedicated to advancing his life's work in narrative coaching and integrative development. He is the author of over 60 publications, including, as lead editor, The Philosophy and Practice of Coaching, co editor of Sage Handbook of Coaching, and the author of Narrative Coaching, The Definitive Guide to Bringing New Stories to Life. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. So for this next segment here, David, I just really wanted to help our listeners get better acquainted to some of the narrative coaching theory and models that you talk about. We don't have a lot of time to talk about them, but just let's get them somewhat acquainted. So let's start with um, you are, if not the authority, one of the most that I've ever heard of on on narrative coaching, having spent 20 years working and refining it. Um, I don't think I understood this was part of your interest when I met you 20 years ago. So where did this interest come from?
2: <clears throat> well, in a funny way, it actually came from my late father. Um, so my father passed away about halfway through my PhD program,
1: mm.
2: uh, which was um, quite a shock. And um, uh, I miss him now, even sometimes twenty years later. Uh, and uh, so then, and I had a uh, our daughter at that point, around that time as well. And I remember when I finished at Fielding and got my PhD. You know, at the time I had a pretty successful practice, but I. I just felt like there was something that I was missing and I w- just during some processing of that loss I realized that um, you know if I were to die that day um, my tombstone would probably read here lies Dave um, a competent OD consultant and a really nice guy uh, and, I, <laughs> and I thought surely my life has to be more than that and so I realized that one of my family stories was that modesty was a really strong virtue in our family. And I realized, well, heck with that. I'm I'm sort of done with that family story. So I decided that day to create the field of narrative coaching um, and register the domain name, which I still have. And it really grew out of my realization that um, I was uh, one of the early sort of participants in coaching back in the early to mid-90s. Um, and I realized that so much even then of what coaching was becoming was just sort of contrary again to everything I believed about learning and development and and my my earlier career that said now people are actually they don't they want more goals they don't need all these structures they don't need all this stuff and so I uh, created narrative coaching as a way uh, for for me to feel more at home in coaching and I started to realize that a lot of people were very interested and and at the time, there's sort of that Wild West notion of coaching. So I invested a lot of time writing a lot of publications and being quite active in um, the academic coaching space. Uh, got picked up eventually as a thought leader at the Institute of Coaching at Harvard, um, and spoken about 25 different countries about narrative coaching. Um, and for me, it just it, it provided a way for coaching to feel like an intentional conversation in which we're coming alongside someone else. We're not subjecting them to our coaching model. And so what we find is because it's based in a lot of um, basic adult psychology that clients appreciate that it feels like a natural conversation, but it has transformational impact.
1: Oh, David, this is just Yummy. So, first, let me say, and listeners, you heard me say it before, and this is in my, my my vitally inspired program, the importance, right, there's something people don't understand the the role that death has in our life, that because mm-hmm. we all have a certain expiration date, that which we don't know, it gives us a sense of urgency and can certainly power purpose. Mm-hmm. And and the idea of starting with the end in mind, what is my tombstone going to say, is something that I do also do in my programs, or, or I have them right there. Um not the epitaph, but the no, what obituary. It, bit, no, not the obituary. What they read it at the funeral, is called. Uh, I'll get there. Eulogy. Eulogy. The eulogy, yeah. So, right, it's so important because when you start thinking about how do I really want to do this thing and you work backward, it, you're a perfect example of why that works so well. So let me acknowledge that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, I do want to go more deeply into your basic narrative coaching model. What I found so fascinating about what you wrote is you really do help us understand how and why it works in your writing. So if you can do some semblance of that for our listeners here, that would be great.
2: Yeah, so um, coaching is really just a semi-structured conversation built around the change that either a client is going through or wants to go through or is afraid of going through. And so it's actually not a coaching model in a way. It's actually a universal model for how people move through change because that's ultimately what people are trying to do through coaching. And so I used a lot of the research I did and writing I did in, in um my graduate program around rites of passage to build a uh, sort of a psychosocial change process. So it's not just about the individual, it's the individual in context. And so the four phases really mirror the four phases of, uh, of a change journey. So I took the original rite of passage um model, which usually has sort of two or three phases, depending on which one you look at. And I actually added to the, actually that part of the academic literature by drawing a vertical line in the model to create four phases, because I realized in coaching, um, there's a difference between what you're looking for and actually what you're moving towards. So it basically starts with situate, which is a, a way for a client to become more aware and more honest. Where are you now? There's no attempt to try to change anything. It's just a witnessing, accepting uh, uh, where they are now. Um, There's something about where they are now that they don't want or like or wish were different. And then that sets them on a journey to say, so what are you searching for? Which is the second phase. What what would make uh, this more fulfilling or successful for you? What do you need to discover or confront about yourself? Uh, What are your values at risk? And this is really a beautiful exploratory phase, kind of away from on top of where you are in the world. Um, If you think of this sort of a two by two matrix, that lower left quadrant is search. And then that's when they really get to um, figure out what the crux of their issue actually is. Uh, We don't gather lots of information because most of it's not gonna be necessary. We teach our coaches how to listen in for what is the essence of what's really happening. And then there's this point at the bottom and it, um, where they start to make a fundamental choice. Like I would like to move on in my life or my work or my leadership, having addressed this particular issue. And in most coaching models, you will at that point set goals. So we don't set goals in this work hardly ever. Instead, we invite people to kind of step across this threshold or this point of choice to say, uh, what would you like to do differently about all this? And they move into a third phase, which is in the lower right-hand corner, um, which has to do with shift. And this is a really fun place because the uh, search is often creating some new experiences for them. So they might discover part of themselves or discover some new aspect of their issue. Shift is about experiments. We actually get people to do new things right then and there in the coaching session, because we tell them if you, there's not any more space right now on this planet that's safer and more caring for you than this one. If you can't do it here, you're not gonna do it on your own when the pressure's on. So we create all kinds of really fun of what we call serious play experiments that people try the things that they're aspiring to become. And then out of that, they kind of winnow and sift out like what really stands out, uh, what really mattered to you about all that, And then we go up to the fourth quadrant, which is called sustain, which is something that we spend a lot of time on, but most coaches overlook because it's not part of our normal contracting. But that's where the bulk of change actually happens, because then they're taking um, what they're bringing forth uh, back in the world or back in the organization and say, what do you need to put in place that allows you to sustain uh, what you've discovered in coaching? And so we create a variety of we have a variety of resources to help people that way. And so there's a spiral that connects this together. So if you have a big issue with a client, it actually might go through these uh, these four phases a couple of times to keep uh, moving through this issue to really create a sustainable uh, change in the client. And all of this is done using pretty much only the material in a client's story, because the client will present. Their issue is tucked away somewhere in their body language, their word choice, and the beauty of this is the resolution is already also present, and our job is to help the client come to discover that. So that would be sort of a high-level view of what narrative coaching does.
1: Extremely well done and very interesting, and in, I recognize that in many ways it does mirror my general approach, although I can tell you that the sustaining piece, you're right, is not something I spend any time on, really, so the extremely useful to have that distinguished.
2: Mm.
1: Let's talk next if we can, David, we don't have too much time in the segment. So I want to keep, keep and yeah. get as much as I can out of you. So if you would, talk about the developmental threshold model and how you use it in your work coaching leaders.
2: Yeah. So um, when clients are moving through the model and, and through their own journey, they have certain choice points, what we think of as thresholds they have to cross. And so what I started to realize that there's a there's a theory in from Lev Vygotsky, yeah, today's fancy word, um, uh, called the zones of proximal development. It's mostly around children's development. But we bring that into the adult landscape and say, um, when a, a client is exploring an issue. They're going to get to the heart of it at some point if they're with you as a good, you're a good coach with them. And that's that choice point. Will I bravely step into this new way, like maybe share more of my emotion or be more assertive or whatever it is I'm about to do. And what we're doing from uh, this sort of proximal development piece is we're looking at what scaffolding would they need around them right now in this moment in time. To allow them both to let go of what they had before, which is not easy for most of us as adults, and step into a new possibility, even if it's just to experiment with it for a few minutes in a coaching session. And so we're just looking at um, uh, what did they need to support them to do that. And what happens is then this becomes sort of a Mobius strip. That as they take new actions they gain more confidence they gain more awareness of themselves then which feeds back to the the first half which is a deeper understanding of what was really going on what was triggering them and then that that deeper understanding of what was going on and what created all this allows them to do the work the inner work to then go back out into the world with even more robustness to try out some of these new behaviors and so these two this sort of this sort of uh, moving back and forth just really creates this deepening, um, both awareness and new level of action. And so this um, we're looking at those sort of developmental thresholds where clients can often make significant sort of meta shifts in their own inner narrative, which not only helps them address the issue they're talking to you about in coaching, but that they then can use it in so many other aspects of their life.
1: That's so exciting. And what I really get from what you just said there, David, is I hear I hear uh, an integrative threading. So they come in, they mm-hmm. do some work with you, and then they take and they thread that back into their every day-to-day life and work. Yeah. And there's an ongoing, like I see it as almost like a, an ongoing upward weaving, if you will.
2: Yes, that's a great image. Yeah.
1: Mm, awesome. Yeah, that's how I got it. Well, and then finally, if you would share with us a little bit about uh, about this work that you're doing to develop narrative coaching practitioners across the globe, how wonderful that you are literally cascading this ripple across the globe, David.
2: Yeah. So I've, and like I said, I probably have taught this work to probably fifteen thousand practitioners uh, and a bunch of leaders as well around the world. And so right now we're kind of creating some platforms on our website to begin to um, invite them all to come come to the piazza. That's sort of the image we're using, have mm. a little cappuccino um, mm. with us and get to, get reacquainted, uh, see where the work is now. Um, and what we're finding too, is that a lot of our um, um, practitioners are not just interested in uh, getting more masterful with their craft. They wanna talk to each other in some ways, even more than they wanna talk to me, which is great. That's um, I see that as a sign of success and so we're creating these uh, ways for them to start connecting Uh, we're creating a sort of an entrepreneurial path for some of them to through a guild that we're forming where people want to take this and apply it in certain formats or certain um, uh, sort of domains and so um, we're doing that and then we're probably the latter part of next year we'll start a narrative healing program for all of our narrative coaches that want to work in things like attachment theory uh, trauma uh, grief etc areas that got Kind of a deep background in my past to kind of go into some of these harder issues with their clients. And so we're um, start slowly starting to put that together as well um, as a way to bring this work to the world uh, outside of the field of coaching itself into the uh, heart of the issues that many of us are confronted with these days.
1: Beautiful, just beautiful. Um, Very inspiring, David. Let's grab our last break. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We were there with Dr. David Drake. He's the founder and CEO of the Moment Institute and the author of over 60 publications, including as lead editor of The Philosophy and Practice of Coaching and co-editor of Sage Handbook of Coaching. He joins us today from Petaluma, California. We've been talking a bit about some of the theory and models that he uses in his work. After the break, we're going to hear how he uses it with leaders and organizations. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: Work. It's broken and needs a serious overhaul. Want to help? Together, let's end the soul-sucking experience it is where people drag themselves to collect a paycheck and usher in a world where work is synonymous with meaning and purpose, where leaders inspire people to rise to their greatness in service of their tasks, and business is elevated to unleash spectacular cause in the world. Here on Working on Purpose, you're not just part of the movement, you're powering the solution. Listen each week on Voice America Empowerment. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise A-L-I-S E at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose.
1: Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Dr. David Drake. He's the founder and CEO of the Moment Institute, which is a global network of practitioners dedicated to advancing his life's work in narrative coaching and integrative development. He's the author of over 60 publications including as lead editor The Philosophy and Practice of Coaching co-editor of Sage Handbook of Coaching and the author of Narrative Coaching The Definitive Guide to Bringing New Stories to Life I'm your host Elise Cortez So for this last segment here David I really wanted to let our listeners in on some of the amazing work that you've gotten to do and obviously we don't have time for much to discuss it but Let's first start with uh, your interest in in integrated development to development practitioners. Um we talked obviously about that in the in the last segment but say more about what is integrated development and why is it important
2: yeah so this was sort of uh, my you know I guess I'm fortunate enough to start two two domains in my two uh, fields in my life. but this one came uh, somewhat accidentally. I went through sort of a difficult sort of personal patch some years ago, and I as we often do in those moments, I did a pretty significant life review and kind of looked at all the projects I'd done over um, probably twenty some odd years at that point. and I asked myself, which ones did I most enjoy and which ones actually worked? And I discovered, in doing so, that they all had the same pattern to them. Some started out that way, but most of them ended up that way. Along, And so I thought, well, what, is, what was I doing in those projects that allowed them to be so successful? And then I started to realize there was this pattern. And so I started to do some writing about that pattern, and then slowly over time, over the last five to seven years, um, sort of identified it as integrative development. And. It largely comes again and very similar to what we've been saying about education, about learning, uh, why school doesn't work as well or training doesn't work as well. And fundamentally it started for me at fielding um, in bringing sort of um, adult learning and development and organization learning and development into one unified process. That we we often complain about our clients and all those silos are stuck in, but we practitioners are just as bad if not worse because we all have our niche and our little thing and, our, you know, and I, what I discovered was that our clients needed something else uh, that wasn't limited to all the silos that we we threw at them and you, if you were doing a large, say, change project you might have six or seven different types of professionals working on the project I thought this is ridiculous um, because then it, we just, you never get enough synergy or momentum and so I thought, but to train people how to work like this Requires a body of work and a theoretical base, so I've been developing that. So we're working on uh, a book on this, which will be out the first part of next year, uh, to begin to provide a way to frame a project, uh, or frame a program from an integrative perspective, and it brings and it then what it does is the narrative coaching becomes one of the applications of integrative development as a frame. So it allowed me to then take all this work I'd built in narrative coaching, take it outside the coaching realm and make it applicable in any, any, basically any moment of our life, but particularly in designing uh, um, uh, programs and projects uh, in society or in organizations.
1: Beautiful. I'm beautiful. And I appreciate what you said about just being able to take a look in what your own life and discover yeah. the pattern that you used. Uh, I've been doing something similar in my work. And somebody mm. suggested that to me. And I, it never occurred to me to do that. But when they said it, I thought that does make sense. So
0: uh-huh.
1: I've been doing something similar. Okay, so the next thing we have to talk about, which I just find so riveting, as you you and I talked about when we first crossed paths again 20 years later, Mm -hmm. this idea of creating transformative encounters in the workplace is just amazing to me, David. So how do you and the practitioners you work with accomplish this?
2: Well, probably the easiest way, and this will come as no surprise to you, is actually to tell you a little story. Um, So I was doing a, a series of leadership programs for a major bank through a partnership with a local business school. And they, they all were fine. They got good reviews. You know, I found they were agonizing because everybody wanted to be involved in everything. And, but I just felt that was really the last corporate training program I ever did. And I was about to give up on all that. And then uh, the CFO of the bank said, Uh, There's this one program that David created on um, effective, basically, influential communication and storytelling. We'd like that for all the finance leaders in the bank, but we want our own version of that. I said, great. And so I went and talked to him, and and basically the bottom line was, they, as with so many corporate environments, they lived and died by PowerPoint, and they were horrible at it, and even worse (laughs) at presenting to it. And so I said to the university and to the head of HR for the bank, I will only do this if you let me do this my way. I will not just give them a standard program. And and if you don't like that, go talk to the CFO because he doesn't want it either. And so in essence, what we did was um, we created a requirement that every participant had to bring a slide deck for an upcoming significant presentation to the workshop. And if they didn't have one, they were not allowed into the room, literally. And there was some complained I said, here's the CFO's phone number. F- feel free to give him a call and see what he thinks about that. Um, <laughs> Let me know how it goes. <laughs> um, and so, and then we had to, and there was, and then there's the, the big hurdle of repurposing the faculty who got great joy out of being the lecturer and the teacher and the expert. I said, we're not gonna do any of that. We're gonna throw away 80, 80 plus percent of the curriculum and we're gonna turn you and I into coaches. We're not, and we'll only teach some very tiny pieces. And then I gave him my, this, my four frame model, uh, which has some other, um, other links to it as well. And we basically said, the participants, you have the entire day. And I don't really care how many slides you brought in. You're leaving with four and using this frame. And then there's all this panic and all this stuff. And so then we <laughs> just said, well, and we're here to help you. And so then we just walked them through a process for an entire day through peer coaching, through individual coaching, through challenging them about, no, you don't need that slide and here's why. And bless their souls, they all left that night with four slides. And some had come with as many as 50 for, I won't tell you how short the presentation was for 50 slides. Uh, And one woman actually went out that night and actually got one of the largest grants in the history of the Banks Foundation using the... Presentation she created in our workshop, mm. uh, and it was just mind blowing. Then they had about six weeks to go to actually deliver that presentation, uh, and and I said use this for this framework for as many other presentations as you want, and then we're going to get together again in six weeks. And so they came back, and they were just bl- like blown away how different things were. Um, and then I said, oh, by the way, there's another surprise for this half day. Uh, at the end of the half day, the four CFOs of the bank are going to come in, and you have one slide oh, no, you know, it's panic again. I said, we're here to help you. We'll get you through this. And so they did that and they uh, moved everything down to one slide and presented to the CFOs who were just gobsmacked. They said, if we talk like this, it would utterly transform our bank. Why are we not doing this? And so what this does for me is th- these these people had been to endless trainings, I'm sure, on effective communication and they, they still were horrible at it. Uh, and so we just said, we're going to throw that away and just walk alongside them with their actual documents deal with the emotional anxiety that comes up when they don't have all their slides in front of them actually have to talk to people um and they and they loved it In during the workshop you could hear laughter everywhere they were helping each other they were making fun of each other they were having um and so for me What I realized is that people, we need to bring their learning and development together into one space about something that matters to them, not that something that we think they should know. That all the, we had like 70 years of experience between us as faculty. We just said, we have all that in our back pocket, but for each individual person in the room, they're gonna need something different from us. And so we don't know what they're gonna need until they bump into and said, oh, I need this, or I'm afraid of this, or I don't know how to do that. And then we could sort of coach and mentor them to learn that in that moment of time to kind of move them forward on their particular project. So we did this for 25% of those less budget, uh, 25% less time, and infinitely less agony of trying to please all the stakeholders. Because we only had one mission help these men and women learn how to talk to PowerPoint in a way that was engaging and compelling for their audience so that the expertise that they offered was was as the brains of the bank uh, would be um, heard and um, uh, followed by the other leaders in the bank.
1: I love how you turned everything right upside down, David, That and, and brought it right down to something so simple, human yeah. connection, what matters to these people. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we make things a lot more harder than they need to be, don't uh, we? no
2: which is often for our own satisfaction. It doesn't really do anything for our clients.
1: Yeah, I get that. Um, Sometimes it just takes questioning things or somebody Mm -hmm. like you to come in and question things. Um, We don't have hardly any much time left, David, but if you could just maybe a couple of minutes speak to the work that you were doing with the team in Melbourne, Australia. I found that so fascinating. You helped create new learning with them. And so if you could say just a little bit about what the work that you were doing and what you set out to accomplish...
2: Yeah. So they. Uh, this. These were all of the senior leaders at the very top of the Victorian uh, government in Australia. And I've done a lot of work in Australia. I've actually lived there for a while as, as well. Um, and they didn't want to, Again, another curriculum, another whatever. These people were dealing with you know raging bushfires, the early stages of, of the pandemic, uh, decl- uh, sort of rising population and economy, but downsizing of budgets. They were just in. And so. I said, there's nothing I can teach them that's gonna help them with this. So we decided to, uh, I got buy-in, which I was actually invited into by the director uh, to do an integrated development project with them, which was that we had a structure for the day But it was really around a series of nested conversations with each other, some coaching practices with each other to help them identify what would help you most right now to get to a place where you can actually stand back and look at what's going on and make some choices about what you want to do differently as a leader. So again, it was myself and another coach that each person articulated in the very start of this day and half program what they most wanted to use. Uh, from us what they most wanted to get done differently and um and then we kind of walked them through those series of conversations and they found it was refreshing it was light they were so relieved we weren't going to teach them stuff um because you know the, the the volume of things they had to grapple with was extraordinary my hat's off to these amazing men and women and so we said we're not here to try to um again, lecture them about anything. We're here to help them feel better about themselves, more aware of themselves, and identify both personal and collective projects, What they did, to actually make their current situation better for them. And uh, we used one of our models, the IB model, which is around identity, behavior, environment, aspiration and mindset, the, the core drivers for performance and leadership, um, to help them de- de- develop some simple plans for themselves to kind of get through this time and create a stronger platform for them to become uh, better leaders. And it was just magical. It was just really magical to watch uh, what happened and they got higher turnout than they've ever had for this level of program that, that they ever could remember. They even had some of their very senior leaders say, can we have more, which they'd never heard. It just their jaw dropped. They would never asked for more. They always want to get out of things um, because they were having such a great time.
1: David, that is such a, a stunning example of, you know, what I hear when you even narrate that, right? What it feels like to get to do work where you know you're making a difference, you know you're making an impact, it's being received the way that you intended it. And then to be asked for more, does it yeah. get better than that?
2: No. Not for that I found. <laughs> I'm having the time of my life. It's it's great.
1: I'm so glad to hear that. Well, here we are at the end of the program already, David. It just evaporated. So you know this program is is designed to help listeners across the globe more meaningfully and purposely connect with their work. What would you like to leave them with?
2: Well, I think I, I was talking to my graphic designer yesterday, and she said, one of the things I just admire about you at this stage in your life, because she's our age, uh, she said, you're just fearless. You know, a lot of us are retreating, and you're like, just leaning into it more. And I said, yeah, we not, we we need to. And so I would just leave you with... You know, where could you be more fearless in your life to really pursue, in in your language at least, like, what is my purpose here? And my purpose in some ways is to leave the world in a better place for my daughter than I found it. Um, And to really, for the listeners, I would just say, not only where can you be more fearless, um, but where can you actually uh, get closer to your own heart? about what really uh, draws you in, uh, what provides meaning for you out of all the cacophony of things that are going around. Just distill yourself enough, long enough to say, I have a gift. Am I giving my gift in a way that's uh, serving others and serving myself well and if not we don't have time for anything else right now and I think the people that will really stand out in the years to come are the ones who are going to you know, put their hand up and say I'm not quite sure where this is all going but I'm going to put my, put my skin in the game and go try to create something new in this sort of grand unknown that we live in now.
1: Powerful way to finish, David. I am so glad to find you again. You were well worth waiting for 20 years to have this conversation. Thank you very much for being on Working on Purpose.
2: Thank you, Elise.
1: Listeners, if you want to learn more about Dr. David Drake, his work, or his numerous publications, start by visiting his website, which is themomentinstitute.com. Last week, if you missed the live show, you can always catch it via a recorded podcast. We were on the air with Gabrielle Boucher and Brian Boucher. We talked about their soon-to-be-released book called The Purpose Factor, Extreme Clarity for Why You're Here and What to Do About It. Next week, we'll be on the air with Hele Bundegaard of the Motivation Factor Institute in the Netherlands, talking about how to regulate and manage this most precious resource, motivation. See you there. Remember that work is at least a third of our life, so let's work on purpose.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, each week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Together, we'll create a world where business operates conscientiously. Leadership inspires and. Passion performance, and employees are fulfilled in work that provides the meaning and purpose they crave. See you there. Let's work on purpose.